So I'm a big fan of football. Go Colts. I moved to Indiana, and I decided I'm all things Indiana. I have a long, there's a long story behind that. There's a reason for that when I came here because I worked in the area. I, don't, I, can't, I can't sidetrack into that. Bottom line is I came here, and I said I'm all things Indiana. So go Colts. I'm a big football fan. And there's a play in football. There's a play in football that you um, may be familiar with if you're a football person. The term is the Hail Mary. How many of you are familiar with the Hail Mary? You know what that is? Okay, we all know Hail, okay, Hail Mary is, that's, that's, that is a church term in, in certain traditions, but that's not what I'm referring to. It's a football play. And what the, the Hail Mary is, for those of you who didn't raise your hand, I'm going to help you. You're forcing me to talk about football, and it breaks my heart, but I have to do it. Okay, so what happens in a Hail Mary play is the team is behind. They are about to lose the game or they're running out of time, maybe it's even halftime, they're desperate. They have not, they've not made it downfield, they've not scored, hope is gone, they, they don't have a good play to run, there's no magic 50-yard play, you know, whatever it is, they're just desperate. And the only hope they have left is to throw up a Hail Mary. they got to say hike, the line's got to block really well, while the quarterback drops back several steps, and the line's got to give them time, the receivers have got to run fast as they can down the field, and the quarterback just heaves the ball as far as he can throw it hoping that in the chaos downfield, his blockers kept him on his feet long enough, and down the field his receivers got open enough, and the ball went far enough into the right spot enough to where one of his guys catches the ball, scores, and they win. It's a basically a miracle play. So it's a Hail Mary. It's a desperation pass, okay? And i, I got to tell you, this is not going to be very popular to say in this region, but i got to tell you, you know, who's really good at those the last many years, if you watch football, is the Green Bay Packers. Aaron Rodgers has thrown more I mean, I watched them play, and he throws more Hail Mary passes. You're happy about that, Debbie? Okay, good. Don't, don't say that too loud. People vote against you. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so he, uh, so, is, so is Rebecca Curtis and Anthony Curtis and a few others of us who like the, the team there. But uh, he's amazing at throwing the long passes with no time left, and somehow they score a touchdown. I've never seen in all my years of watching football, which are many, I've never seen a person do better at Hail Mary passes than Aaron Rodgers. Now, I know you might hate him in this area, but good news, he's going to retire one day and he'll be gone. Just like some people hated Michael Jordan, and he's gone now one day too. Things will, people come and they go and they become legends and they're gone, but he is amazing at Hail Mary passes. Perhaps a desperation pass like that, perhaps today when I say that term, you might say, Arlen, that sounds like my prayer life. That's how I pray. <laughs> my prayers are Hail Marys. They are desperation passes, man. They're like, help. And, and perhaps that describes how your, your prayer. And when we get desperate in prayer, we all know this to be true. It is both easy and hard to pray when we're desperate. It's easy to pray when we're desperate because what else are we going to do? It's like, what am I going to do? You pray? Has it come to that? I don't know. I mean, you know, we're desperate. We just automatically, no one has got to ask us. We could be unbelievers. We're like, God, if you're there, help me. So, so in some ways, it's easy to pray a desperation prayer. But it's also hard, especially if you're a person of faith and you think, oh, man, I've not prayed like I should before this, so who am I to pray now? Or perhaps you feel like, God can't do this. It'll make him look bad. Or perhaps you're thinking, I made this mess. I can't ask God to fix it. You know, so sometimes it's hard to pray desperation prayers because you just don't know. Maybe discouragement or doubt sets in that it will even make a difference. 
or perhaps shame that we haven't even asked more prior to that moment. I want to read you some Bible verses today from the Sermon on the Mount. I want to talk about them for a few minutes with you today. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, Jesus said this, Matthew 7, verse 7. He said, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who, to everyone who, everyone who seeks finds and to everyone who knocks the door will be opened. You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Some of you dads are like, yes, I do. That's funny. I love you. Absolutely. Um, of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? I wanted to talk about this today, and I knew I had a reduced time. Only about, only about an hour and a half still to go. Um, joke, joke, joke. Um, but anyway, I, I wanted to talk about this because in the last couple of weeks or this month, I've had a number of people come to me in the church or out of the church going through a tough time and saying something like, I'm kind of in a desperate spot. I don't know how to pray. Does, can God still hear me? Or prayer confuses me on this. And the thing about prayer is, it's such a big topic. And we can't answer all the hard questions about prayer today. And I'm just telling you, if we were going to teach on prayer and all the nuances of prayer, I'd need probably four or five weeks, and even then we wouldn't cover it, okay? But four or five weeks would be adequate to get a lot of conversations had. I'm taking one today, a shortened one, which means we're just going to skim the surface of one simple idea. But I want to encourage you, if you're in that situation, to at least be thinking about prayer. And as you read those verses, you might look at those verses and say, there's a lot of questions I have inside of that. Like, there's some things that God said he would do that I have not always experienced. Or I don't know, what about this? We have some yeah buts, you know, like, yeah, but here's what happened to me, right? Or here's what I think, or here's what I'm worried about, or here's what I expect. So here's what I want. I want to talk about a little bit of that today. But before I do, I think we need to start this conversation from the right foundation. If our foundation of approaching prayer is basically that God's an angry soul who has kind of hacked off at us because we're all a bunch of bad sinners and he doesn't like us very much and he's looking for a reason, if we jump through all the hoops just right and don't say the words wrong and cross our T's and dot our I's and live just right and maybe he won't like ping us off the face of the earth for bothering him, you know, if that's your approach to God, you're probably already at a disadvantage in wanting to pray this way. So we have to begin from a foundation, no matter what's going on in your life, that, that we start with an understanding that God is for you. That God loves you. He talked about being a father in that last verse. He loves you. He is for you. So ask boldly. And if we can begin all the yeah buts and all the complications and just come with the idea that in those verses God was saying, Jesus was telling us, God is for you. Start there. Start with that big idea in mind. Come into prayer with that big idea that God is for you. And if you believe that God is for you, you'll ask him boldly. But if you don't think he's for you, you'll always hesitate. You'll stand back. You'll say, I don't know. 
You'll make excuses. You'll, you'll cast doubts. So come with the understanding in the beginning that God is for you and ask boldly. Now, when we say ask boldly, uh, what do we mean? Well, that verse gives us a little acronym for ask. Ask is the big idea. The word pray means to ask. And if you read that verse, you'll see a little acronym in there, A-S-K, ask. And that is this. It's ask and seek and knock. Ask and seek and knock. That's a big idea right there. This is a big concept. Uh, Anthony was pointing out uh, a little bit earlier, uh, this is a big idea because it just imply, implies different things. Why did God not just say, ask or keep on asking, keep on asking? Why does he say ask and keep on seeking and keep on knocking? Why all three? And it's, it's, it's just, who knows? But an idea is maybe we ask because God is near and we're just trying to ask him. Maybe we seek because he feels far away. Maybe we knock because we feel something's in between us and, we're, and something's in the way. But either way, we come to God and we're just saying, I'm here to, to ask, to seek, to knock. I'm here to, to come to you with what I need. Look at the verse again with me, Matthew 7, verse 7. Keep on asking, you will receive. Now, I got to tell you, when I grew up in church, in our older English translations that we used, it, it said this. It said, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock. It didn't say keep on in that translation. However, growing up in that church world, we were told over and over and over again all of our lives that that word ask is actually a, a big concept. In the Greek, it means it's a linear ver, a verb, which means to, key, uh, to ask and ask and ask and ask. Seek and seek and seek and knock and knock and knock and knock. So, I love, this is why, and I say that for some of you who've been around a while and you maybe memorized this verse that way. Here's the awesome thing. I love, this is why I love the NLT and translations like this, because they just kind of say it this way plainly, with the, with the word, what the Greek word is saying. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be opened to you. Now, if you are like me and you've been around, we may have some questions from experience. Questions like, what is God exactly saying there? Because I know that one time, right, what is God saying here? Well, unfortunately, the next verse doesn't make it any, well, let's just look at the next verse. Verse 8, for everyone who asks, receives. And everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. And that can make us even more hesitant, right? Sometimes what pastors will do or Bible teachers will do or, you know, small group leaders or Sunday school class teachers would do or parents to their children will do is we'll say, well, what God really means here, what Jesus really meant was, and that's not wrong. We have to do that because oftentimes, you know, if people take the words of, of, of Scripture out of context and misapply them or selectively apply them. So we have to do that. That's not what's wrong. We say what, what Jesus really meant here, but sometimes when we say it, it's because we're coming from our own place of doubt. It's kind of code for Jesus didn't really mean this. You know, he didn't really mean this. And it's because it's one of the fears we have, again, as parents raising our kids in the faith, that we, want, we, we, we teach our children or maybe a new believer that we think they're, a new, they're new to faith and their faith is fragile or tender. Or maybe they've been around a while and they've become fragile or tender in time. What if they ask and God doesn't come through? Right? What if, we, what if they ask and God doesn't deliver? So what we do is we try to give God an out. 
We give God an out so he doesn't look bad. Because that's our big job in life is to keep God from looking bad. That's, my, that's why I'm here, you know. And so, no, right? So we try to do damage control for him. And again, I'm, I'm going to try and put some perspective on these verses myself. But let's not, because we do misunderstand what it's saying. But it's not because Jesus didn't mean what he said. He meant what he said. Sometimes the problem is, is we don't look at the, the topic of prayer holistically. We see in lots of places in Scripture where God says things like, we, 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 um, we come to him, and, and if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We're told that sometimes our, we're in a bad place and our sins are, are, we're in a such a bad place that our prayers can't be heard because we're not healthy. Sometimes we ask for things and we ask for the wrong things with the wrong motives the wrong de- and desires. And so there's so, there's so many. We, we, we've done this before. Not today, but we've done whole sermons before about why God might not answer the prayer the way we ask him to. We've had those conversations before, and I don't have time. But you know what I'm saying. You get those ideas. And the thing that I'm pointing out is this, is that it's usually there's a reason for it, because God answers. He does. He just answers. And it helps to have some perspective of the people in this passage. This is first century people. We always forget. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Earlier in the same sermon, Jesus was teaching the model prayer, and he said to the people, pray this. Give us today our daily bread. You know why he said that to them? Because literally they needed their daily bread. We, we are, we're so removed and we're so Western and we're so rich. We just are. We are developed nation, rich Westerns. We really can't comprehend. But 2,000 years ago, these people, it was illiteracy. It was everywhere. No one had time to learn to read. You worked from sunrise to sundown, and the cities you could. Some people, did that. I think the percentages were like 10%, 11% literacy rates. In the cities, it was higher. In the countryside, it was almost nil. People would work all day for an existence. And, and there was no refrigeration techniques. Things, a prayer like God give us today our daily bread was pretty literal. We don't think in those terms. Like in modern American culture, when we teach that statement, pray, God, give me my daily bread. We interpret it all sorts of ways. We're like, that speaks to me. Give me my daily bread for me means, God, give me special bread of wisdom and enlightenment today. And God, give me special perspective and bread for today and all these spiritual things, applications, whatever. Whereas for some people, that's like literally, no, I'm looking for bread today, you know. And so I think sometimes when we approach it, you know, God's saying, look, if you need something, I'm going to feed you. I'm going to shelter you. I'm going to take care of your needs. So we can come from a very wealthy and privileged perspective and look at these verses and say, well, I don't know. I asked God for a Porsche. So that verse ain't true because there ain't no Porsche in my driveway today. I asked God for, <laughs> for my, uh, my leveraged S&P investment position to, to moon and it crashed instead. It was a nightmare. Uh, uh, what's going on in the world? I ask God for whatever, right? We can, we can do so all sorts of things. But here's the deal. We are often coming from a wrong perspective. We're asking God, give me what I want, not meet my needs. I'm not saying God, give me a way to get around. I'm saying God, give me a Porsche. That's kind of messed up. God, make my spouse, make my wife treat me better. Zap my enemies so that they know I'm the man. You know, make my kids do everything I want, turn out the way I want them to exactly and be little clones of me. Make me feel good. Make my parents, you know, make my parents let me go to that party. You know, we, we pray selfish prayers because sometimes our prayer life can be a manipulative tactic. 
we all know manipulative people, don't we? Sometimes we have family. Manipulative people are the ones in your life who say, you don't really love me if you don't do all the things I want you to do. If I want this from you and you don't give it to me, then you don't really care. So that dynamic is unhealthy in any relationship. And if we play that in faith with God, we come to God and we say, God, if he doesn't do this, then, ha <laughs> you know. That's, that's not looking to understand God's heart and prayer, to believe that God is for you. That's trying to say, if God is really for me, he would do it my way. But he's for you. And he answers our prayers. But sometimes we pray weird prayers. In fact, if I can quote, if I can, sometimes the things we pray for, we don't really know what we want anyhow. Let's be honest. That's the problem. Most of us, the problem is, is that we had a story in our lives at some point where we prayed something and it didn't work out the way we hoped it would. Now, if we live long enough, sometimes we realize that things worked out just fine, that God took care, opened a different door. How many young people are like, just help, help that boy, my boyfriend to never break up with me or, you know, you know. And then all he did, oh, where was God? Where was God in that? God was helping you is what he was doing. He was answering what you needed to hear, not what you were asking for, Right? You know, remember the patron Saint Garth? Saint Garth once said, some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers, right? I mean, hey, you know, we're real good sometimes at saying, this is what I want. And God's like, eh, you think that's what you want, but what you really want is this, and that's not going to get you there, so I'm going to answer your prayer, but I can't answer the prayer the way you prayed it. But I answer your prayer. I answer prayer. I hear you. But when we ask God for something and it does not hope work out the way we hope it would, it can make us wonder. Have you ever experienced the death of a dream? Have you ever experienced asking for something and not receiving it? Seeking for something and not finding it? Knocking and the door was not opened? Is Jesus over-promising and under-delivering? And the problem is even further in the next couple of verses. Because verse 9 does not get easier. He says, you parents, you parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? To which we're like, well, no. Again, the dads are like, well, I might. That's kind of funny. Here, <laughs> it's, your, it's your mom's bread. That's how she cooks it. It's hard as a rock. Not my fault, you know. Um, no, you don't do that. And again, we think of that in, terms, in different terms. Picture the first century audience saying, look, your kids are le- legitimately hungry. And like, dad, can I have some food? And you're not, you're not going to sit there and say, nah, you'll do what you have to do. You'll find a way. You'll sacrifice your own food. And make a sacrifice on your end to make sure that they have something to eat because you care for them, right? That's what your parents will do. You get this. He goes on and say this. If they, if they ask you for a fish, do you give them a snake? And again, the same idea. And I want to make a little nuance here. I'm going to read into it the way it's not saying, but I, I don't want to miss a good point here. This is not the main point of this verse. He's making the same point. They ask for something, you're not going to not give it to them. But I love this phrase. If they ask for a fish, would you give them a snake? Because I was thinking about that. A fish is something that someone would ask for because that's what they want, that they think is good for them. You wouldn't give them a snake because a snake would be bad for them. And a lot of times, that's our prayer life. We go to God and we ask him for something that we think we're asking for a fish. We think we're asking for something that's helpful and good. But God, who sees the big picture, says, actually, that's going to harm you. That's not, that's what you think, you think you're asking this, but what you're asking me, if I did what you want, it would actually harm you. And moms and dads, you know what it's like to raise kids and you'll meet all their needs and you'll even meet a lot of their wants. If they'll talk to you, you want to help them, you want to say yes, 
But sometimes you have to say no because you know that's a bad idea for them and you're, you know that what they really want, what they want is this, but what they really want is to be happy, to be healthy. You don't want them to get themselves killed trying to give them every wish they had, to put them in a harm's way just because they think that's best. And, and so you have to navigate that tight, tight line and hope that they trust you, and that they don't sit there and say to you, well, if you're not going to give me that, then I'm not going to talk to you again. You know, what? So you're in a difficult spot right there because you get sitting there saying, look, you're wanting this, but I know that's going to that's bite you. That's what, that's what it's all about in that space. But God is like, look, come to me. I answer prayer. And you parents know that how tricky that can be, but you want to take care of your kids and you want them to come to you. You want to meet their needs when they come. And God wants to meet your needs too. Verse 11, he says this. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? Now that's a great verse, and that's a verse worth memorizing. I don't know if you're memorizers or not. That's one worth memorizing. And if you hear that word, you sinful people, don't think God's like, Jesus isn't like knocking you, you sinful people. Right? He's saying, look, y'all ain't perfect, are you? But even in your brokenness, don't you try to do right for your children? Right? Look, I, I've tried to be a good dad. Michelle, we've tried to be good parents our whole lives. But we're not perfect. We try. We're not perfect. I got a daughter getting married this week. It's a very emotional week for me. I'll be honest with you. It's an emotional week. Um, walking her down this aisle, sharing her ceremony. I walked into her room a couple nights ago and um, say goodnight, you know. When she was a teenager, we did this a lot, you know. But then, of course, she's been an adult for a few couple years now, and she's in and out at different hours sometimes, so we don't always get a chance to. But I still go to her room when I can at night when she's there, like I did when she was younger, and see how she's doing, say goodnight, give her a hug goodnight, tell her I love her. So I went a couple nights ago. She was, it was, you know, and I said, hi, how are you? And I gave her a kiss on the forehead and hugged her goodnight and said I loved her. And I said, I only get a few more of these. Just a few more. And it's done. You're not, you're, not, you're not in this room anymore. You're not living here anymore. It's over. And we both got a little sad. And the night we talked for a minute longer than I, we told her we loved each other, hugged again. And I went to my room. I'll be honest, I, I went, I put my head in my pillow and I sobbed for about, I don't know, a half hour or more because it was killing me. Um, and when you're going through those things and you're feeling those things, um, you know, you think about all the good memories, all the times that you loved, all those moments that you cherished. And you also think a little bit about, um, you know, what could I have done better? Not because anything's wrong, but just because things are changing. You go, I should have spent more time. And we were there. We were there. We did all the stuff. We were very involved. But can I have done better? Can I, can I just relive? You always feel like just rustling through the grief of good, happy moments that are also bittersweet is uh, all the bargaining about this and that in your head. And I know that I'm not a perfect parent. We've tried. We've been a good example. We've modeled a good marriage. We've been there and supported our kids and everything. And we've, we've, done, we've done all the stuff, taking the time, the trips, the experiences, the you know, support of their adventures. We've treated them well. But I'm still not perfect as a parent, and neither are you, right? And if Arlen in his shortcomings 
knows how to give good gifts and take care of my kids. And I'm not perfect. I can have a bad day. I could be irritable one day. I could be oblivious one day. If I, as a human being, know how to give good gifts to my children, how much more? If you know how to do that, and we're flawed, how much more do you think your heavenly father feels that way towards you? And I know that when we say heavenly father, I understand something. I understand that for some of us, you, the term heavenly father is a reminder of an awesome father figure. I had an awesome father. And it's just a reminder of, of just, yes, you know, uh, that's God on steroids right there. He's just God's a better version, you know. But maybe you had an absentee father or some, it was complicated or abusive or whatever. Maybe you had a, a mother who was that way. Your mother was that way. You're like, God's like my mother. He, he's, he, you know, just that parentally caring. But, but father or mother, whatever you want to use, those are just human constructs. Those are just terms that help us try to understand God. God is so much more than a father, a mother, or anybody else. We understand human relationships because we're humans. But God's everything. The maker of it all, the universe itself, holding it all together. He's there. He's God. How do you put a label or a title on God? And so God says as humans can understand what an awesome father looks like or what you wished an awesome father would have looked like, that's your heavenly father. What your awesome mom looks like, what you wish, you know, that's your heavenly father. Whatever you think this is, God is all of that. And if we take care of our kids to the best of our ability and we're not that perfect, how much more does God, who is all of that and more, take care of us? And give good gifts to those who ask him. But again, you're like, Arlen, it doesn't give much wiggle room. I asked him for a good gift. A Porsche is a good gift, you know. Where is it, you know? But God's good. He's lo he loves you. Some people will say things like, well, God doesn't answer prayer because I, didn't, I couldn't manipulate God into everything I wanted him to do exactly the way I wanted it to. And I know we don't all pray that way. Some of us, are, we, our prayers are pretty open-hearted, like, God, whatever you want. I'm free-spirited. Ah. And others are like, God, I have a list of 13 things. Do it this way exactly. But God's like, I want to hear you. And I want to answer what you really want. What you really want is to be happy. What you really want is to see it through. What you really want is to survive. What you really want is, and I'm going to sometimes give you directly what you ask for, or I'm going to do what you need. But I'm hearing your prayer, and I will answer. And when we don't like what happens, we'll say, well, God didn't answer my prayer. And some people are so unhelpful. They'll be like, well, it's because you don't have enough faith. If you'd have had more faith, God would have answered your prayers. You didn't have enough faith. Well, thank you very much for that little boost in the arm. I'm already disappointed I didn't my prayer answered, and now i got a faith problem. I want to propose today that it's not a faith problem. I don't think this is so much about faith as it is about obedience. If you were to look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, and I can turn that verse into a, a different format, here's Matthew 7, 7. Here's how it looks on the screen. Ask, and it shall be given you. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking, you will find. Keep on knocking, the door will be opened. Ask and seek. There's two columns there. On the left side, ask, seek, knock. On the right side, give, find, opened. Our responsibility in prayer is the left column. Our responsibility is to ask and to seek and to knock. To keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. The right side of the column, that's God's responsibility. That's his to, to figure out what given, find, and opened means. And we get in trouble. We get in trouble when we stop doing what we are supposed to do because we are disappointed or confused about what God is doing. 
is all the problems we find are getting into a space where we say, well, I don't get God's end, so therefore I'm not going to worry. I'm so focused on his end and what it should be. I'm not doing mine. I want to propose today to let God be God. And let's just do what Jesus asked us to do. Say, well, my faith, put faith aside and just try obedience. Try following Jesus. Jesus said, ask. That's our, that's our column. He said, seek. He said, knock. And let God be God. He gives. He helps us find. He helps doors be opened. And I think the longer you live, the more you look back and you see that clearly. That either I was asking amiss or something wrong, but God was still faithful. Or God answered my way or another way. In my time or another time, but God answered. But our job is to ask and keep on asking. Our responsibility is to ask. This is so important here. And this is the whole sermon right here. Our responsibility is the ask. God's responsibility is the answer. Asking boldly is an act of obedience that will help us stay more persistent in asking boldly. And that's so important because life has a tendency of wearing down our bold prayers. Wearing them down. And so that's why Jesus said, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. The, answer, the question isn't as much if we have the faith to ask and seek and knock. The question is, in light of ups and downs in life, will we have the obedience to follow Jesus' directive to persistently ask and persistently seek and persistently knock, come what may Trusting that God can handle his column, but we got to do what's in ours. Now, I'll be honest with you, I have, I've lived a long time and I've seen God answer a lot of prayers in my life. Sometimes God's answered prayers before I prayed them, right? You've been there, like I need something and you've thought about it and then, whoa, that was awesome. That was a God thing just now. I didn't even get to pray about it yet. Thank you. I've prayed prayers that God came through when I asked him just simply, God, could you help me? And he did. And he answered something very tangible. And I, we all have some, maybe we don't all have, we can have cool stories where God does those things. But I've had prayers where they were big prayers over a long time of asking, 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 keeping on seeking, keeping on knocking. And God's answered. And I, I was really going to do a sermon series one day just to share some of my big answers to prayers that I've known to hopefully encourage somebody. And, um, and, to, and to some lessons that I've learned biblically in prayer through answers to prayer. But I, I thought what I would do today is I'd share a story that I probably wouldn't share at a time like that because it's kind of a weird story, but it's, just, it's a good time to share it. Um, when I was young, Michelle and I, you know, we were raised in a very strict Baptist, fundamental Baptist type home. We were in Bible college training to serve God with our lives, very strict upbringing. We were in a Bible college where living in the dorms there was more strict than living at home with our parents, quite honestly. Uh, we had fallen in love. We wanted to get married. We wanted to marry each other. You know, we, we were raised, like, really, again, we were raised particularly. Like, when, when we got to our wedding day and I said, when I said our, we said our vows on our wedding day and then we kissed, that was our first kiss to each other, was uh, at our wedding altar. We were just raised in that kind of an environment, which is awesome. I'm, I'm complaining. But some of it was, like, a bit much. <laughs> and um, we were looking forward to getting married and getting out of there, you know. And getting, you know, married was a big deal. We're living in, in our settings that we were in. And I asked her to marry me one January. She said yes. And then everything fell apart. I had a job driving. I was parking cars in 
uh, high-rise building in Chicago on the lakefront. People lived in these super big buildings overlooking Lake Michigan. They, this is 1993, 1994. And back then, they paid just for the parking space where we valet parked their cars when they came in and out. For the parking in the building that they rented the apartment up on the high-rise overlooking the lake. The car space was $700 a month in 1994. So they didn't pay us like that. That's not the kind of money I made. Uh, but we had a job, and it was a decent job. And I was working, and we were engaged, and I was excited. But we were not, we were, not we're, we're typically young people, poor, but we're going to make it work. And then I lost the job. We were driving the cars. We would be go outside sometimes in the overflow lots. It was winter. It was icy, and the ramp was sideways, and I, they didn't salt it well, and the cars slid and damaged another car. It was not my fault, but they needed a scapegoat. I lost my job. And I couldn't find one for a while. Winter's going on. I'm engaged, and my, my school bill's falling behind. I was about to get financially withdrawn from classes, which basically there was like, you're the devil if you do that, you know? So, I mean, I'm like, I'm going to lose my classes, my credits for the semester. Um, I can't afford to get married. I needed a job. I finally found a job in Chicago that was working um, two blocks from the Sears Tower. I know it's not the Sears Tower anymore, people. I know it's something else. But it's the Sears Tower when I grew up, and that's what I remember still, so forgive me for mislabeling it. But anyhow, um, I was two blocks from the Sears Tower, and um, Willis Tower, and um, I would go there, and I was making just enough money, just enough money to stay afloat. But my school bill was still in arrears. I couldn't keep up. I couldn't afford to get married. I didn't have a place to move into yet, and now it's getting worse. I'm in, I'm in the hole. I didn't have a better job, and I began to pray. So I had an hour-long lunch break every day at that job. And from 7 p.m., it was still dark outside at that time at 7 p.m., I'd walk outside, and I wouldn't eat. I would just go walk for an, an hour around the Sears Tower and the other buildings. I would go down to this little grassy strip by a building overlook at the Chicago River and the scenery of the skyline, and I would just pray for that hour. And I was praying about a lot of stuff because that was kind of my, my life back then. It was just, you know, and it is today too, just to pray. But, but I was especially right then praying about this emergency. God, I need a place to live for my new bride. I need a job that can provide for us, and I need to catch up on my delinquent college bill because I didn't have any kind of help or loans. And so I said, God, you got to do something. So finally I went to our pastor, and again, it's a different environment. It's hard to understand if you've not been in a church like that. But I went to our pastor for advice. I was hoping he would say, let me pray buckets of money over you. But instead he said, maybe you should put off your wedding for a year and try it next year. And I'm like, that's really going to devastate my, my bride. And that's not going to devastate me, and I don't want to do that. And so, but he said, you have to make a decision. You can't, you can't do it. And he was right. So I went back home, and I went back to work. And every day for an hour at lunch break, I'd walk around the city, and I'd pray, God, please. And it got to a spot where I knew it was done. I was about to get financially withdrawn from college. I was about to, I didn't have a place to go to a better job, and I've been praying for those three things. And I said to the Lord, at some point, i got to let my bride know, my, 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 my fiancé know, that this is done. For now. And it's going to be hard. So I said, i got to do it at the end of the week. So Thursday, the day before I'd have to, to confront her, I'm walking around, I'm just praying. I'm just praying through the city. I'm like, God, please, these are the things that just come through, please. It was a windy day. I don't know if it was a windy day. So windy, you know how the city can be. I was watching birds get slapped against the buildings near me and about three different times and just drop down dead. It was like, oh, that's lovely. And I'm like, that's me. <laughs> that's what I felt at the time, you know. God, I'm getting, you know. So um, it was a wild time. But I remember praying so hard. And knowing that if God just didn't, and I've been praying for months, asking, seeking, knocking, if God didn't come through, it was the end of that wedding date. And it would be a year, would she still marry me? 
Is this going to break our hearts? What are we going to do? So I remember praying that night saying, God, it's just, I feel nice around by this wind myself. I don't know what else to do. Went back to my room that night, fell asleep in my pillow in tears because I thought this is it. Next day, got up for breakfast, met Michelle, smiled, walked her to her class, went back to my room to get ready to, for my other classes and then to tell her at lunchtime kind of the bad news of where we were. And I walked back into my dorm room and the guys, when I walked in the room, there's guys and they're saying, Arlen, where have you been? And I said, what do you mean? Uh, the phone's been ringing off the hook for you. Time out, back up. Young people, you don't understand how this works. There was a time when we did not have these things called phones in our pockets. In my dorm room, we had two pay phones that we put quarters in to call people. Or we had one landline that someone could call in, and everyone in the dorm floor would run to see if it was for them, and they had to find the person that the call was for. That's how we, people had access to us. That was our technology. I know it was the dark ages, and it was sad. But anyhow... They're like, where have you been? Like, I was clogging up the phone lines with calls for me. So I had these messages to call people back, and I did. The first one was like, hey, someone just anonymously came in and paid your entire back college bill completely. It's a lot of money. It's paid up. I'm like, what? Thank you, Lord. That's amazing. Next call. Yeah, hey, uh, I work over at Overnight Transportation. You beam UPS Freight, and we're looking for uh, employees, and you got your name referred to us, and we want you to see if you come in, take a pass, drug test, and start it as soon as you're able to. Best job I ever had financially. I kept it till I became full-time pastor. What in the world? Thank you, Lord. Third message. Hey, uh, heard you're getting married. Uh, we're moving out of a place, and we want to know if you'll want it. Now, back then, my friends were getting married or renting out. You have 1994 prices. Typical two-bedroom, one-bathroom apartment back then. Don't cringe now. Two-bedroom, one-bathroom apartment back then for a new couple was about $550 to $650 a month. Does that sound good to, still? That's what people would pay, plus utilities. And so he calls and says, hey, I got a place for you. We're moving out two-bedroom, one-bathroom duplex, $250 a month. All utilities are free. Do you want it? And I have the phone, and I'm like, God, thank you. I went to my room. I just, I just cried. I just prayed and said, God, thank you. He came through on every single front of the things we were praying for. And he's done so many bigger and more wonderful things through the years. But that story was the first time as a young 20-year-old man, I was young, that, you know, that I would remember just learning that God wants us to keep on asking. He's not un unlistening. He's not ignoring us. He's got his own column. He's got something going on. But what are we supposed to do? Ask. Our responsibility is to ask. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. God's responsibility is the answer. And the biggest thing we sometimes do is we give up along the way. Because we're worried about what God's supposed to do instead of what we're supposed to do. Let's leave the giving, finding, and opening in his hands. And let's never stop asking boldly because God is for you. Let's ask. And let's keep on asking.